0: Welcome to Sports Lit. I'm Neil Acharya. And I'm Nathan Sager. Today our guest is Corey Hirsch, a former NHL goalie, Olympian, who today is a mental health advocate. In this episode we'll be discussing his book Save of My Life from Harper Collins. It's going to be released on October 11th. And
1: the book today talks about mental health and suicide, as you probably guessed from the name of our guest, who's been an advocate about that since 2017 if you are in canada and struggling please remember there is a 24 7 365 suicide prevention line that you can call at 1-833-456-4566 and it's also available by text at 456-45. and know always that telling people i need help and i am loved shows your strength (音楽) .
0: On a hot June night, in 1994, the New York Rangers became Stanley Cup champions for the first time in 54 years. It was a thrilling ride that came down to a winner-take-all Game 7 against the Vancouver Canucks. If you go back and watch the Hockey Night in Canada footage, you will see the fran- frantic final 20 or so seconds. When the final horn goes, the Rangers have won a nail-biter 3-2. GM Neil Smith embraces the woman beside him. Mike Keenan hugs his assistants and shakes hands with the training staff. And on the ice, Mark Messier hoists the cup and becomes the King of New York, a title which he hasn't relinquished, at least in the hockey sense. The guarantee, matto matto, all of Canada, or at least Western Canada, watching uh, Vancouver and rooting for them. The cauldron of pressure had come to a head and it finally worked out for the blue shirts. And... As you pointed out Nate, there was a fan who held up a sign and it reads now I can die in peace for Corey Hirsch, the Rangers emergency third string goaltender who's just shy of 22-year-old 22-year-old 22, 22 years old at the time. The peace of that night will come via realizing game 7 means he can go home regardless of the result. A hockey player unable to fully enjoy his team chasing the Stanley Cup. Imagine Since the second round of the playoffs against the Capitals, Hirsch has been held captive by intrusive thoughts that he does not understand and doesn't know where they came from. And they have him at the end of a figurative rope. As he writes in The Save of My Life, only in the last few minutes of that Game 7 does the fog start to lift because he realizes that he's going to get out of this place. He actually tried to break his hand earlier in that playoff run just to see if he could get sent home. He was in misery because of these thoughts. And it'll be another three years before he's diagnosed with OCD, which in his case is an even more rare form, uh, pure obsessional, uh, purely obsessional, pure O. And as much as it was a relief for him to get this diagnosis from the Vancouver Canucks team psychiatrist, it's not the end of his struggle and there's no cure. This happened during the 1996-1997 season. Way before we got to the point where we are now, where there's Bell Let's Talk and there's just a lot of talk and a lot of uh, understanding around let's talk about mental health and, and get rid of the stigma. So there was really none of that at this time, especially if playing professional sports. So, you know, not only does he have a mental health disorder, it's probably not one that's really publicly, it's not one that's publicly understood and not even really professionally understood, really. They're just learning about this a lot more now in recent times. And and through all of this, this is all happening basically only he's the only guy that knows about it. It's not really known to anyone else. And then in 2017, he released an article uh, in the Players Tribune, and it's titled "Dark, Dark, 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 Dark Six Darks," which in this story it explains, you know, his suicide attempt. He was going to run his car off of a, a cl- off a cliff because he, he had this unending cycle in his head.
1: Yeah, and that's heavy, uh, obviously. Hersh never allows himself a, a second of pity across, you know, more than 200 pages of describing his, his journey through, you know, these, you know, dark pl- places emotionally. He never does a when you look through the years and see what you could have been. You know, he was a 14-season pro from ages 20 to 34 all while he was sick. And obviously his openness and advocacy creates a legacy beyond that admirable playing career that included 108 NHL games and an Olympic silver medal in 1994. But his hockey TV page reaffirms how tough a living it it must have been, been uh, for someone who sort of, you know, had so many things in his working against him, that kept him from reaching his potential because he played for 17 different teams. I mean, that is the biz, but it's kind of like a, you know, almost like a hyper reality version of, of what many people who have, uh, you know, mental health disorders go through. I mean, you, they need the stability more than anyone else, but it often becomes so hard to get it because people don't think you're not, you know, you're not, fully invested in something they think you're not there not present and you don't want to sometimes self-advocate because that means letting people know trusting people to understand that you have a sickness that isn't visible and i will add uh i was completely ignorant about uh pure ocd i probably carried forward you know the more common media portrayals of the other forms of ocd until we read this book neil
0: yeah, and, and you know, that's um that's something we'll ask him about because the term is is just synonymous with just you know obsession, uh, as opposed to any type of mental illness, uh debilitating mental illness associated with that. But you said it you know, there there is one book I thought of that I had read prior to this um that relates to the same subject, and that's written by a guy named John Kerwin. Uh he's an all black Nate, and as you know, um the status of an all black in New Zealand in the rugby world is they are the, the ultimate competitor. Um, they are the cream of the crop in rugby. And he wrote a book called all blacks don't cry. Um, because he was having a lot of these similar pure O thoughts and we haven't touched on them yet, but there's kind of like there's silos of them and they can overlap. And, and, and from what I remember about John's book, he was, he was worried about hurting someone all the time. Um, which, you know, for a lot of people that thought can go in and out of your head, but, you know, for people like John or Corey, that just stays with you. And you're trying to understand it and break it down until it becomes mo- immobilizing. And um yeah, so that comes to my mind, too. And I'm going to I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be interested to see if, if he does know about about this book, All Blacks Don't Cry.
1: Yeah, there were times where the descriptions of, you know, those like thought loops that were in Corey Hirsch's head, it just comes flying at you like, you know, like so many point blank shots during a five on three power play to use a really tortured hockey analogy but much gratitude for Hirsch for relating as much what it is like to battle with that Uh, i had no idea and i speaking from a place of having known for more than 20 years that i have depression and social anxiety disorder but i have never had anything as intense as what Corey and Sean uh, Patrick Conroy describes. So I'm grateful that we're doing this episode. It's timely because as Corey says, the book mental health is health uh, and world mental health day is fast approaching on October 10th. And just as only what you can self-advocate, only we can self-promote, by the way, uh, a related content to this episode definitely includes, I think season five, episode three, when Brant Myers discussed his, Painkiller, a story of big league addiction. Uh, Myers, also an Alberta native like Corey Hirsch, and both of them played in the Western Hockey League, I guess right around the turn of the 1990s. I think they overlapped by a couple of years. And a perhaps less evident, but even perhaps even stronger connection for us really is maybe farther down in our archive. Back in Season 4, Episode 10, Rick Westhead graced this space to talk about finding Murph because that book was really using the plight of one player as a through line to examine science denialism that cor- courses through our commercialized collision sports like hockey and the NFL and boxing, you know, how far back they've you know, been denying the, the dangers to the, you know, the human brain. And I sometimes wonder if that's been going on all this time too, with mental health issues in sports, you know, Neil, you and me, you know, was when we were curious, you know, hockey, fans kids you know 35 years ago we probably checked out every old hockey book out of the school or public library and how often did they write about a quirky goalie who had nerves you know back back in like 1950 when they didn't have masks and they were expected to play a whole 70 game season with no backup goalie and you're just wondering you know how many how often was that something deeper like like you go back and read up on bill durnan who won I think six top goalie awards in the NHL in the forties, and then just had to up and quit because of a quote nervous condition. I mean, it was something probably much deeper going on, but we don't know because then it was really impossible to find anything written about him after he stopped playing. Yeah, playing. good point. Yeah. And I also came across an article in McClain's from you know Trent Frayne, one of the great Canadian sports writers of the 20th century. Never talks about mental health, but it just lays it right on the line that hockey was asking way too much of uh, goalies in in particular in in those days. Like I say, 70-game season, no backup, no mask, no goalie coach. You could look it up. No goalie in the NHL in 2022 with all the, you know, supports they have now. No goalie played 70 games last year. UC Saros of Nashville played the most with 67.
0: Well, you know, back to Corey, Uh, we are going to talk to him today about his path from despair to hope, and and now he helps others. Um, And you said it off the top, Nate, Uh, he always says there's, or he says at the end of this book, there's, you know, if there's a takeaway, it's these three words, and that's, I need help. (laughs) After, After the break, Corey Hirsch. And we're back with Mr. Corey Hirsch, who has uh, graciously joined us from his hotel room in Saskatoon. Uh, I gotta ask you, Corey. Uh, first of all, thank you for being so brave in, in writing your story in 2017 in the Players Tribune, and then and doing this book, which kind of expands on that and your life. Uh, how uh, how has the process been so far in terms of press? I know you said you're doing a, a talk tomorrow. Um, I'm, I'm assuming it's about the book. So how's that gone so far?
2: Uh, it's going really well. You, you know, I've been, uh, I've been doing a lot of speaking for ICBA, which is a, a benefits and wellness company and they, they do a lot of construction workers. So that's that middle-aged man that, uh, or, or young men even, and, and there are females in the industry too, but, um you know, it's a, it's a group that really needs the help. They're five times more likely to take their own lives than, than the regular population. So that's been going really well. And, and the book is, is just, well, I mean, you know, I'm a little nervous for it to come out, but Hey, um, you know, it's important for it to get out there. It's educational. And, and, uh, hopefully it helps some people.
0: Oh, absolutely. Nate. I know, uh, we both read it. And we're very moved by it. Um, you know, this goes back to um, the Players' Tribune article in 2017. Um, and one of the things myself and Nate, I guess, both noticed is, you know, obviously, there, you know, mental health has come a long way. But what's so interesting about this is you, you talk about something so specific. So when you put that article out in 2017, you know, we'd already have the Bell Let's Talk movement and things like that. So there there was advancements. But did you find a lot of people came up to you and said, you know what? That part of what I struggle with wasn't out there, and now I'm not alone.
2: Yeah, well, here's a. Everybody thought that OCD was hand washing or organizing or being overly neat, and that's that's a one one millionth of what OCD is. Um, you know, I do everything in my head. I don't do out, outward rituals, but um, you know, it's what I wrote. Really surprised a lot of people because, like I said, they didn't know that that was. Uh, what OCD was like, and and here's the thing about OCD is people, you know, they they kind of use it as a, a, you know, an adjective or whatever. But most of my friends that have OCD have either tried to take their own life, um, and some have been successful. So it's not really a funny. Um, it's debilitating. It's one of the mo- top ten most debilitating. Um, I I don't want to call it an illness or a disease, but one of the top 10 most debilitating things, uh, you know, in North America, as as far as it's been rated. And, you know, we need to put a, a, yeah, a lot of people are struggling with it. And I just want to educate people and make people feel they're less alone. that do have these thoughts.
0: And I do believe that has been accomplished uh, over the last five years. And it'll probably continue to um, compound with this book. Um, You know, the, you know i don't want to be triggering or anything like that but you know the 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 difference between this book and the article is it it gets into more specifics about what this is and um and i think that is that was that kind of the hard part when you worked with um i think it was uh, sean right on on writing this like was that a part where he said hey listen like we're gonna have to get into this you know to kind of explain it further or or how did that yeah no
2: that... it was that you know the content of it regardless of what it is whether you have harm thoughts sexual intrusive organizing germ thoughts the contents all none of it's real but for whatever your think your brain makes you think it's real um and it's just it's an epic battle in your head when you know that you know the truth but you know i always say this ocd just tries to muddy the waters and tries to make you doubt and all that stuff. So the content is, isn't really even important. Um, mm. The content is just what it is. It's, and I don't know why my brain chose it. I don't know why other people's brains choose germs. I don't know why other people's brains choose uh, harm thoughts. You know, I, 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 I don't know. Nobody really does know. But, no, it was something that I wanted to put out there because it's something that is debilitating for people. And um, I know who I am. I'm not worried. Really i've had enough therapy and i think um like i said a lot of people out there that i know have tried to take their own lives um and we need to put an end to that with ocd Uh, um so sean sean's just a great writer like sean just took it and, and and to another level really i mean that's just who he is and he's such a talented gifted writer and and i'm sitting there reading it going jesus were you sitting right beside me like were you there when all this was going on that's how good he is
1: And what, what responsibility did the two of you feel to make this story about your, you know, raw truth and impressing upon people that, you know, it's simple solutions are not likely a thing because there's no sort of one size fits all with this.
2: Yeah, no, it's, uh, we both, we both sat down and talked about it. I mean, um, we're, I'm not too worried about what people think and, and out there and people can think what they want when they read the book. That's not in my control. What I'm here to do is to help people that have these types of thoughts and issues. Um, so I, I, really, doesn't really bother me. I know the truth and, and so I CDF, um foundation. So, um, you know, it's, it's something is going to grab the reader and it's intense and I don't even know. Someone told me, well, it's an excellent book. I don't even know if you can call it an excellent book. You can just call it extremely intense and educational. Would be the better word for me. So when Sean and I, um, you know, sat down and, and we discussed how this was going to go, the bottom line wasn't about you know anybody else other than helping people with OCD or helping people understand OCD um, because. I don't want anyone else to try to take their own life or take their own life because of a stigma or OCD being you know, thought of as, as something that's weird or, or strange when it's not even the person's fault.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and what is the phrase, you know, the idea of mental health is health mean in a wider sense, especially with the work you mentioned that you're do, doing now with, uh, with people in the construction industry?
2: Well, mental health is health, meaning it's ridiculous that we we separate physical health and and mental health. Like we separate them. Last I checked, the brain was a physical piece of your body. But for whatever reason, you know, we've in society have separated them. and, and, And a lot of that is stigma from the early years because you don't understand it. I can see a broken bone. I can't see someone that has OCD if it's in their head. Right. So it's it's the unknown. And we have to start treating that mental health is the same it's no different i do the same thing for mental health as if i had a, a pulled muscle i'll go for mental health i'll go see the therapist i might get on a medication i'll do the therapy hopefully i'll be better at the end of it if i got a shoulder separated shoulder well what do i do i go see the the physiotherapist i might get on medication i continue with my physiotherapy and hopefully it gets better might bug me for the rest of my life might not but what's the difference between that and going getting mental health therapy it's exactly the same but yet we've separated them
0: have you found um you you know has there been any sort of like i guess improvement since you know just being public does that have anything to do with it is that a fair question
2: very fair question um and nothing's off limits here, guys. I mean, my, the book, everything's out there. I don't, I don't you know, it's going to be out there. So um, I've been booed by 20,000 people. You know, you guys aren't <laughs> going to hurt me. So um, as far as, like, things have changed, people are more willing to talk now. Um, and But, you know, our system has to get better. Our system has to be better equipped to handle these people. And we're very far behind in mental health help. Um, and all that stuff there's medications out there that that you know need uh, that are good to help people but there's also some new you know plant medicine and, and mm-hmm. um, you know and, and things like the ketamine and, and psychedelics that are really starting to help that we need to start to do more research on if, if they can help people and, and uh, there's been great results in all of that stuff um, and we need to move forward with it
0: you you know in the in the book you're specific about people that kind of understood you early on or at least listened to you and and just three that come to mind are Brent Sutter, uh, Mike Bernstein the trainer in Vancouver and Dave Babbitt and I know there's a number of others as well. Um, was there anything? common about them was there a commonality in 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 who they were that allowed them to listen to you and is that something that could be imparted on others
2: yeah you know what it was was oh here's what it is is that you think that the toughest cowboy and the toughest man and the tough this and tough that isn't willing to listen you're wrong i i know i know so many guys in the nhl that were some of the toughest people i played with that i could go up and have a conversation about anything with just because on the outside they look gruff or tough or whatever They're some of the kindest people, and we'll all listen to somebody because we all have struggles. And if someone doesn't listen to you and they they act like you're crazy or they push you away, well, then they're not your people, Um, you know? And I say this in my talks. I say, hey, if I'd have taken my life that day, do you think my teammates would have come to my funeral? And they would have said, you know, what a man. He sucked it up like a man. I'm glad he didn't talk to me because that's not what men do. No, they would have said, I wish he would have talked to me. We could have helped him. We could have got him help. Now he's gone, right? Like, like Mm. that's, but we have that mentality that we're not going to talk to other men because they might look at a stranger, treat us different, or we don't look manly. That's the stupidest thing ever. Masculinity almost killed me and I'd rather be alive.
0: And, and, and in terms of, um you know, just talking back then, you know, in some of the first people you talked to, were you just surprised that they'd listen to you? You know, you, you, you thank Dave personally, um, Dave Babich. I mean, was that just, you know, at that point, maybe you weren't even telling him specific stuff, just saying, hey, listen, like, I need to just talk to someone about anything like.
2: Yeah, I, well, Babs was more. He just made sure I had someone to hang out with because when I was struggling, nobody wanted to be around me, right? They didn't know what was going around uh, on right. with me in my head, but most people treated me like the plague because they thought I was a bad guy. And Babs always made sure that I had somebody to hang out with on the road that he always invited me to dinner. And maybe he didn't particularly Mm -hmm. like me at the time either. Right. (laughs) I wasn't in a good headspace, Right. But the kindness he showed was, was, was unbelievable. And then same with Brent Sutter, same thing. I mean, um, he didn't know what, what I was, but it was just the kindness that he was willing to talk to me when he realized that something wasn't going right for me. Um, and then, you know, Mike Bernstein is a trainer and those guys are, 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 in the NHL, the best of the best. And, um, you know, it's showing that little bit of kindness and compassion, even though you don't understand is probably the greatest gift you can give somebody.
1: And and I also wondered Corey too, like how, how much have you shared with like other, you know, former goalies about, you know, what challenges they've had since, since, you know talking i starting to talk about this five years ago
2: yeah i, I talked to a lot of guys chris mason's a good friend of mine um you know there's a, the kirk mclean's a friend of mine lots of guys i talked to about it and but what you what we notice is the common denominators that we all struggle not just goalies right players mm-hmm. doctors football players construction workers whatever it is it, it doesn't discriminate uh, people ask me if hockey did this to me, and I'm like, no, hockey actually saved me because it gave me an outlet and a rink and people to be around. If I was home alone every day, I'd be scared to know what would happen. Um, and hockey was a great gift for me. So this um, this has nothing to do with hockey or the sport I played or, or any kind of pressure. This is just something that, you know, happens to people. It, it really does, and some of it's genetic, and some of it's, um, you, you know, your environment. It's uh, it's all sorts of different things.
1: I, I will say that after reading the book, I want, it made me like question every sort of, you know, like we're all about the same age and we used to get those books out of the library and there'd be, you know, you know, hilarious hockey stories part three. And it, it made me question everything I ever read about a quirky goalie from back in like the, you know, the pre mask original six days, how should one look at those stories now knowing what <laughs> is the universal yeah. players? well look at them the same enjoy them (laughs) the 70s
2: goalies 60s goalies were a little bit nuts they didn't wear masks like you had to but no you know what those stories are um yeah i mean those were the times that people maybe they had mental health issues maybe they didn't i i I don't know i mean you know you look at terry Sawchuk was uh Mm. you know alcoholism and well something was going on, right? Like he wasn't drinking because he was a goalie and he liked to, he was drinking because something in his life happened traumatic and people just didn't understand. So they blew it off as, as him being a goalie, but I guarantee you, I've, I've seen the story and I've, I've watched the, you know, I've watched the movie and that. And I mean, his brother died when he was, you know, when he was younger, there was, his dad was, there was, you know, some mm-hmm. abuse or something. I can't remember. I don't know if that's true, but something mm-hmm. like that. And, um, And then he went on to to play in the NHL. The NHL didn't make him an alcoholic. It was the trauma underneath of everything he went through. And we need to start understanding that, um, alcoholics heroin addicts opioids crisis or whatever these are people that have trauma they didn't wake up one day and go hey I, you know what at seven years old i don't want to be a fireman you know what i want to be an alcoholic and i want to live on hastings and i want to be an... O-, you know like, right. people don't do that something has happened and they need the help but it's up to them to get the help too as well
0: and that's, you know, you, that's part of your aim now and your mission after playing and, and coaching um, and and also working as a commentator is to is to get people that help. Um, I, I want to go back to both myself and Nate were, were journalists and um, the Players Tribune occupies an interesting space, I think, for journalists in that, you know, Derek Jeter created it because, you know, he wanted to and he lived in that cauldron. You've seen how that cauldron works in New York in 1994 when you're there. It's you know, the the press can be tough uh, and that's putting it lightly. So he created this after he retired to give the athletes an unfiltered voice. So I guess my question to you is, do you need to have the Tribune to reveal this story for the first time? Was it important that you had unfiltered access and someone could, you know, write down what you wanted to write without it going through a journalist per se?
2: Yeah, so what with that, Um, what that did was, is I was going to write a book, but a book is specific. Like you have to get specific people to read it. Not everyone likes reading, right? Not everyone's going to read this book. The article was fast. It was a long read. It was an intense read, but it was something that could get out there quickly and hit the masses quickly because you can get it over the web, right? And the web, Mm. there's a reason it's called the web. So that's how that worked and it hit really hard if i'd wrote a book first i'm not sure if there would have been you know that kind of impact but i was one of the first professional athletes to talk about a suicide attempt to talk about ocd in that way and there was people that came before me clint malarcha Mm -hmm. gelden kennedy you know all those guys that paved the way when it wasn't quite uh as safe to do so so i have to give a big thank you to those guys too
0: yeah. It's interesting. Cause you do mention Sheldon Kennedy in your book and kind of like guys telling you, Hey, like watch out for him. Um, and maybe some of the same people were saying that about you, right? Cause at the time, nobody knows.
2: Exactly. I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, well, I'm sure. I, I know my teammates did. I know some of them tried to get me traded. Um, right. you know, you just don't know what's going on. And But it's up to the person, too, right? Like, I didn't come forward. I didn't tell people what was going on with me. I didn't come forward with my struggles even after I got diagnosed, right? So Mm. people are left to guess, um, and that's hard to do. So part of it's on me, too, right? So uh, because they didn't know, and when people don't know, they're going to make up their own assumptions and reasons. And, um, you know, like I said, uh, I'm partially responsible because, you know, uh, I didn't tell people. In fairness
0: to, to you, yeah. Corey, I don't know if that's fair to you, to be quite honest with you. I mean, I think at that time, that would have been a pretty hard thing to say, and it'd be a hard thing to say now. And one of the things that me and myself, <laughs> me and my, sorry, me and Nate talked about was actually how there's no excuses made in this book at all, um, which w- I'm sure was probably, I mean, I don't know if that was probably just by osmosis or what, but, you know, it definitely comes across. You know, you're not saying, hey, I could have done more. You're just saying this is what happened.
2: Yeah. No, and, mm. and, and I don't make any excuses. I don't know what happened or why it mm. happened. I, I still mm. don't. But there's no need to make excuses for it. Um, take responsibility and, um, you know, and, and just know that, hey, I didn't ask for this. I didn't right. go, hey, hey, universe, give me this. That sounds strong.
0: right. <laughs> right. Right. So
2: mm. it's yeah, it's it just like I said, I, I didn't ask for this, right. but it's what I deal with.
0: You know, I, I before I want to move on to just um, some of the highlights of you playing and and you know some of you know you played the in you know the biggest hockey league in the world uh, and I think it's about seven seasons um, you know and I think you say was well, there's what seven you know how many goalies are there and you get to be one of those which is quite amazing I know my uh, I used to work with Kevin Weeks and he'd always bring that point up like how many goalies are there and you're one of them so um, uh, I wanted to ask you though have you have have you heard of a book called all blacks. Don't cry by John Kerwin. No, I have
2: not. Oh, okay.
0: Wow. Well, I, I it's actually the only other book I've ever read sports related that touches on actually any book period about oh, anything okay. that you have written in your book. There's some similarities. So I encourage uh, you and anyone listening out there to check it out. It came out in 2010. He uh, played a wing for the New Zealand, all blacks, John Kerwin. Um, oh, he's Australian, right? Uh, uh, he's from New Zealand.
2: Oh, New Zealand, right? Yeah. I've heard about him. I haven't read his story. Yeah. Yet. Yes, check,
0: check, check it out. I think there, there's a lot that you will find, uh, you know, relatable, and and it's it's a valuable story for sure. So, anyways, back to what I was uh, what I was saying initially. Okay, so um, what was what was the highlight for you? Was it playing internationally and winning silver, or you know, yeah. the NHL? Uh, well,
2: hockey-wise, you know, the highlight is is the Olympics. And that's really the last time i can remember being quote unquote normal um, mm. you know if there is such a thing as normal um so that's probably yeah that's probably the biggest highlight um but i have to say and and to you know to bring it's it and i, and I will say this and i and i don't want to sound arrogant but with what i had it was like I'm proud of myself for making the NHL because it was like I had two hands tied behind my back while everybody else had full body, right? Like mm. if you could say it in a physical sense, because, you know, with what I was dealing with, I still played in the NHL. And that's probably hockey wise uh, is the greatest accomplishment for me. Anyways.
0: Yeah. I mean, and I mean the Stanley cup too, although it, it came at such a, a low time for you too. I mean now that you look back on it it, it 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 is it something that you see in a different light maybe not the experience but the but just having been on that team
2: yeah and 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 I was a roster member so you know we have to make that clear I can't take credit for a Stanley Cup I was the third grade, right. so I just watched every game but I got I got to drink out of the cup very tinny by the way <laughs> Um, it's like drinking out of a can of corn and everybody else 10,000 <laughs> other people drank out of it before you um, No, but you know what? That is a cool moment. I have the photo um, I look at it though, and I don't remember much from those mm. days I mean that was right around the time I did get sick and I, I really honestly I don't remember much I, I was so busy in my own head that um, You know there's stories that people tell me that I, I don't remember at all, which well, is unfortunate cool
0: you know you you do take a you have a really you know good take on on you know the play the the postage stamp too right with 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 what Peter did uh that move that everyone tries to do now or or now it might be more common but I remember when it happened it was like I saw like a Martian landing like it just didn't we didn't know what to make of it right um but you know I, I mean did it take you some time uh before? you kind of like, we're okay with that. Or were you just right off the bat say, Hey, listen, this guy just made a a world-class move that was so good. They put it on a postage stamp.
2: (laughs) Well, back then, I mean, I was like, is that even legal? Right. (laughs) So I was like, it was because he kind of pulled it behind him. And I'm like, I did we didn't have shootouts over in in North America. So I didn't know what was and what wasn't legal. But now when I look back, um, it's part of the reason I'm doing what I do today. Right. Mm. So Mm. that moment, I'm thankful for it because, um, you know, that's that's something that's made me relevant in history. And I'm I'm just glad it wasn't, you know, some slug. It was Peter Forsberg.
0: <laughs> well, like I say, I don't, I don't, I remember watching it, Nate, maybe you can share a memory too. And I should just say for the people listening out there, I didn't tee that up well enough, but this is the shootout for the gold medal at the 1994 Winter Olympics. And Corey's facing Peter Forsberg and Peter Forsberg, um, you know the, the game has become a lot more I guess I don't want to say more skilled but it's this is something you could see now and go okay maybe it fits in with the Michigan but back then that you literally nobody knew what was going on I don't know Nate what was your thought I was like I had not
1: seen this before and I think maybe a week later in sports illustrated that I want to say that they said Forsberg learned that move from like Kent Nielsen had pulled it off in the in the World Championships maybe five years earlier. Or so, but again, we we didn't have experience with, with uh, shootouts at all. And in, in North America, wasn't in any pro league or major junior back then. Maybe, maybe you've encountered it in a minor hockey tournament. That was about it. Yeah,
2: yeah you know, when
1: <laughs> with that
2: too, it, it's. Um, I show it all the time now, but I mean, I appreciate you guys bringing
0: it up and reminding me. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know what? Thanks. We, we did talk yesterday, Corey, on the phone and, and I, I, pr- I promised that we were going to talk about some fun stuff too. Um, so I want to, I want to ask you, you know, I mean, uh, again, I don't mean to keep going back to 94, but we got iron Mike Keenan as your coach, you know, um, like, there, there was some characters on those teams on, on every team you played, right. I played on. So, um, you know, anything stand out, you know, I, I believe it was seven seasons over 10 years. Right. Am I, am I right when I say that in, if if I'm in your NHL career?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I had Mike Keenan, I had Mark Crawford. I had, God, I had a lot of different coaches. Um, Vancouver, I think I had five and four years. It was, it was, (laughs) and you know, and, and Mike was, um, Mike was well he was Mike Mike wanted to win I don't question that but his he just took it a step too far (laughs) Uh, every time and I remember one time we're in Detroit and the backup goalie you sit on a stool in the bench in the back and it's steel and it's it was the old Joe Louis arena and it was just it was awful and your skates would be rubbing on the stool and there was nowhere for you to sit and uh I think after the second period, we're getting a shot like 38 to 11, and we were up one nothing going into the – Gar Snow was playing. He was incredible. Detroit scores two quick goals. 20,000 people are going nuts at the start of the third period. Like the ice is tilted, and Mike comes over, taps me on the shoulder, says, get the hell in there. <laughs> I contributed to five more goals. We lost 7 to 2 and uh, that was within about 18 minutes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Thanks Mike. Yeah. yeah. So that was Mike Keenan
2: though. And uh well, yeah, my my skates were like the blades were like butter knives. I couldn't even stand on them. You, <laughs> right? you, you, it was you, uh, it was not. Yeah, it was uh that was Mike.
0: You have that great story though and uh, that you just mentioned the the Joe Louis Arena and I, where you're like you had like a full circle moment there, right? Like where you went. I to, did, yeah. Because that was your first NHL game there, right? Yeah, my first
2: and, NHL game. We tied 2-2. And then, you know, it was almost good, I think, 15, 20 years later where um, my boy and his team were in Detroit. And the last year that Joey Louie was was up in the last season that it was uh, in use, um, I got to take my boy to a game. And, and I and I called the, the Red Wings and, and uh, uh, Kenny Holland set me up with tickets. And I didn't know where they were. They just so happened to be up in the upper rafters behind the net that I had my first NHL start in. So that was pretty cool. I was there with my boy and his hockey team.
0: That's amazing. Uh, you've coached, we talked about, me and they talked about this in our intro, you, you've coached uh, with the Blues, with the Leafs, Hockey Canada as a goalie coach. How is that, like how did that, how's that, like there's so much advancement with the analytics and everything. How did that role change, like from when you first started to kind of when you, you know, maybe bowed yeah. out or what you're even noticing now from fellow colleagues like is it just is it you know just racing at the speed of light type thing
2: yeah it's um you know goaltending changed a lot obviously you know i'm not goalies got bigger butterfly style came in that's part of what pushed me out um but you know it it also i never had a goalie coach till i was 27 years old i got to nashville with mitch corn and and goalie coaches definitely have a role Uh, I see a lot of overcoaching now, Um, and I think it hurts their goaltending, actually, because there's an athletic element that's, um, you know, being forgotten and and creating all these robot goalies and, and, you know, in Peewees and Bantams and U16s and all that stuff, and just let them play, you know, and they'll learn that stuff as they go along, and and I think we're all trying to get an edge and we're creating these robot goalies that... um, there's still athleticism, man. Like you look at Demko and Markstrom and all these guys, and you look at Jesterkin and Vasilevsky and how athletic they are. Um, you know, it's it's quite incredible how much goaltending has
1: changed. Yeah, one thing I wonder about too is if with the the butterfly and the constant search to always have a tall, a big goalie, is is that the, really the best thing for you know long long term athlete development? Because I look back at old footage from the '70s and '80s, and those goalies just seem so much more human, you know, just flopping around and stacking the pads.
2: Yeah, it's, you know, like I, I watched Mike Palmetier. That, that was the guy that I idolized when I was, and he, I mean, he was all over the place, which is, you know, what's cool is I golf with him now in the summer sometimes. Yeah, and I idolized him. But yeah, goaltending just evolved, right? And we, so my generation, like my shoulders, I can't throw a baseball, um, you mm. know, that's what it is. But goalies now, it's their hips, right? Um, because they're in that butterfly. But for me, you were always taught to get back in your feet. So you're continually pushing yourself up off the ice, right? So um, that's where it's changed as far as injuries and in, in that. But as far as, you know, the goalies are better than they've ever been. And, and the style is is, you know, what it should be. Um, I'm glad they shrunk the equipment. I mean, it was getting ridiculous there at one point. I mean, I was watching Patrick Waugh and he had blocks everywhere and I'm sitting there going, Jesus, I don't cheat enough, you know?
0: (laughs) And by the way, Paul Mateer, uh, you know, maybe a generation before us, but that save he made in the uh, outdoor game, I think I'll give people I don't know if you remember that, Corey, but he, he robbed somebody, and this is like seven years ago as an old timer and it was Probably the most athletic save I'd seen in, in some time, even in an NHL game. It was yeah, and that's remarkable. vintage
2: Mike Palmatier. Mm. Yeah. You know, that, that's vintage Mike Palmatier. So uh, it was great to see it. But he doesn't know any other way to play, right? So mm. that's Palmy.
1: Yeah, I, I was just wondering maybe when I was looking back at, you know, the old clips on compilations, people on YouTube, I was just like, I think this was better. That style of goaltending was better for the fans because you could relate more to the, to the guy guy in the net. Is that or am I out left field on that?
2: No, no, no. Yeah, it's uh, you know, like with a guy like like Mike Palmatier and, and some of those older goalies. I mean, practice was survival, right? Like mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, and and it was even somewhat in my generation. It was you just didn't want to get hit with the puck. Now these guys are like they, they'll, you know, they'll stand in front of anything because it doesn't hurt. Uh, but back then, man, I mean, you, your shoulders were exposed, your inner, your knees were exposed so Mm -hmm. some days were just survival so that it's changed a lot in that sense that the injuries aren't quite what they were um it's just different
1: true and one one equipment note i think when we did our memo rayon episode neil will remember this i spoke to my sister because she's a goalie but she was a left-hander when she started they didn't make a upper body protector that was customized for lefties so she was always getting like bruises in weird in weird spots yeah. uh speaking of fan friendliness cory uh, one ex- playing experience you had that i found fascinating was when you were in sweden you were i think malmo right you were part of a team that won promotion to the top tier of swedish hockey now everyone who watches like the e- english premier league knows about promotion and relegation i just wondered to go through that how much excitement did it generate around the team and around the game to to have that something that you know doesn't exist in North America.
2: Can you repeat the question, please? Oh yeah, sorry, I got I right, lost you for a second. No, yeah. I lost you for a second.
1: Oh, I was just wondering, one uh, experience you had in your career, I found fascinating. With Malmo, you were part of a team winning promotion to the top tier of the Swedish league. Uh, we don't have uh, you know promotion and relegation in North America, but how exciting was it to be part of that and seeing you know fans experience it?
2: It was so cool. I, l- I like the relegation. It gives some games, you know, at the end. Um, something in the fans, something to cheer for, right? It was, uh, um, and you know, when I went out on a winning note, I, I love Sweden. If you told me I had to play there, I had to live there the rest of my life, I'd be like, okay, it was such a great place to play. Good people, made a lot of friends, and and Malmö was beautiful. It's right across from Copenhagen. like, I encourage everybody to go play in Europe at the end of their career. I, I really do, because it's it's such a, a great gift to be able to travel the world and, and be a professional hockey player. You
0: know, just on your roots as a goal uh, as a goalie and, and, and you know you're talking about the end of your career uh you have a funny story about just kind of learning uh or getting the bug and it's about throwing a french fry at your mom and realize it might be a goalie gene when she makes like a glove save off this french fry you threw at her as a kid um could you share that story with our listeners <laughs> <laughs> i was just a kid my mom's
2: like i want to can you pass her? I think we're eating mcdonald's and i was about Nine years old or ten years old, and she's like, "Can I have some of your French fries?" And I was like, "Sure, snotty kid, right?" I threw one at my mom, like, <laughs> and then she ended up catching it like Mister Miyagi with chopsticks, etc. Between her fingers, and and we we're all like, we we're all shocked. And to this day, we say that my mom got a reflex, or I got my reflexes from my mom, not my dad. <laughs> my poor dad. My athletic <laughs> ability and my reflexes from my mom.
0: <laughs> Give a hard time. Mm. (laughs) go ahead nate
1: (laughs) and i know sometimes with writing a a memoir you sort of ask people to confirm things details confirm memories to what extent did you and sean do that for this book which is written in the first person
2: yeah um you know there's a lot of stuff i don't remember right so you know i had to i had to ask people like i'd ask my mom some stories she told me and um so for for me like i i had um once it was written and once once sean went through it and and kind of punch wrote it um he just gets it like he just gets ocd and and um some of the stuff i'm sure he made some calls some of the stuff was other people making calls and pulling stuff from everywhere but like i said i don't remember a lot from those days because i was so busy in my own head and there probably is a lot more that could be in the book mm-hmm. that i don't even know but i'm gonna give you guys a, a spoiler at the end of it i live Okay. So (laughs) I don't know if you know that, (laughs) but I make it.
0: (laughs) You know what? Yeah. And we're so happy you did. And there's probably gonna be so many more people out there once they read it that are are happy that you decided in 2017 to share this for the first time and then just, you know, go further and and just kind of explain the whole situation. And, um, so that leads us to what you're doing now. And there's the blindsided podcast with Dr. (laughs) Diane McIntosh. Um, you know, has that been um, therapeutic for you as well? I mean, I know you're not sitting in there with her, but in the sense of you're getting treatment, but it, is that a kind of a, a healing process or or a, uh, you know, treatment process as well? You know,
2: some of it's really hard. Some of it's yeah. really hard to listen to. Some of it I can relate to. So it's, I can feel other people's pain when I'm doing some of those stories. But mm-hmm. Diane's great. And I'm just, I'm learning a lot, right? I, mm-hmm. I am. I'm learning a ton. So I wouldn't call it therapeutic. I would call it knowledgeable. Um, but there's days after some of those interviews, I have to go and take a break. Like I got to take two days to myself because I'm I'm. It's it's pretty intense stuff, you know. Like we had Everson Griffin on, who's bipolar, and um, you know before he got diagnosed, there's a lot of things that happened. Sheldon Kennedy was on, and you know Sheldon Sheldon's story was was quite a while ago, and and I talked to Sheldon. But there's a whole new generation that needs to hear that story. Because um, right. it's still happening today, so those are tough ones. And they're, I've got to take a little break and a timeout when uh, it gets like that. Um, so it's more knowledgeable for me.
0: I, I know you're. Yeah, it's probably probably a bad choice of words on my part, but I I, I do want to also ask you about some of the other things you're doing. Um, I know you have uh, an affiliation with CAMH as well, if I'm not mistaken, and. Just, um, yeah, wondering, um, you know, what else besides the podcast, uh, speaking tours, anything else uh, that you're kind of up to, uh, either in this area or away from it?
2: Yeah, the CAMH stuff was a few years back. We tried to get more educational for kids and that, but um, I'm not sure where the program's at now. But as far as like... I do public speaking. I do, um, you know, I do a lot of public speaking in the construction industry, but I'll I'll talk to anybody I can, right? Five people or 5,000, doesn't matter to me. Um, And I do uh, my podcast, Blindsided. I got the book coming out. And really, it's just a matter of of, uh, keeping up, being knowledgeable, trying to keep myself. Um, You know, I'm still in therapy myself. Like, it's something I'll have to live with the rest of my life, but I do well. Um, and I have to keep up with that and I got to take care of me. So that's part of it as well.
0: Well,
1: you know, go ahead, Nate. And one thing I related to when you were talking about your early life was about being teased for, for having red hair, which I heard every day, probably till I was, you know, well into my teens as well. I, I wondered how did that, how did you work to, you know, shed the, you know, that, you know, negative energy that people were trying to put on you?
2: I'll be honest. I still don't. I still struggle with it. I still think I'm ugly. (laughs) I'll be honest. Like, um, because that's what you get called when you're a redhead. And I hope if people are listening out there, you know, stop calling redheaded people ugly and stop calling them names because it's, it's a lifelong battle for me. It really is. Like I, it creates self-esteem issues. I've had therapy over it. Um, and it's not cool. You know, um, people are beautiful in their own right. And, um, you know, tell nicole kidman she's ugly she's a redhead right so it's like um it's it's something i struggle with to this day and and yeah people can be ruthless and that's just what it is you know we've gotta
1: um we have to end that
0: you know what Corey? i um nate unless you have anything else no, no, i feel bad on... bad
1: for assuming that it was something that was passed <laughs>
0: <laughs> no it's not yeah um but yeah, Corey, I uh, you know what? Thank you for giving us the time uh, today. Uh, and is there anything else you you want to share and your hopes for the book or uh, anything else um, before we uh, let you get on with your day? No,
2: I appreciate it. Go to uh, anywhere you listen to your podcast. Download "Blindsided." Um, you know, we've had some great guests, Kurt Warner, Bubba Watson, Paul Bisonette, um, you know, uh, Everson Griffin, Sheldon Kennedy. They're all and they're all stories. They're all knowledgeable and they're all there to help people. People that these are guys that all struggled that you wouldn't think of struggled and have come out the other side doing pretty well. So um, that's the only thing. And that's that's probably the most educational show I can and thing I've ever done.
0: Thank you again, Corey, for your bravery. And uh, we'll uh, we hope to catch you soon uh, somewhere else
2: awesome thanks guys and buy the book
0: yes yes for sure October 11th it comes out thanks very much for joining us Corey Hirsch thank you